Well, for the majority of this, we've been stuck in the ancient past, but now we're going to start moving through modernity, and we are going to head towards, yes, Jekyll Island and the start of our financial ruin in this country. We're getting closer, guys, and uh, I'm going to start speeding it up a little bit. I hope you're enjoying it. This is, uh, this is a really important one, and I'll point back to it. Welcome to Drilling Down. Our journey has taken us back to the dawn of human history, and we have spanned the globe in search of evidence hidden in the sands of time, with the goal to uncover ancient layers of deception, to bring to light what has been lurking in the darkness. Our investigative research at Drilling Down led to the development of preliminary criteria by which to identify a Nephilim host based on a cluster of traits. I hope you enjoyed that last episode. As we dug into the accounts of history across six different continents, the criteria for classification as a Nephilim host seems to be supported by the evidence that we have found, yes? And this criteria for a Nephilim host will become invaluable as we use it to examine the masterminds behind the Federal Reserve. Ew. So, with the help of Miss Laura Sanger, in this amazing book, we are going to start trudging ahead into the modern era. So we're going to follow up on leads that search through evidence of anthropology, uh, science, archaeology, history, the uh, 21st century. You know, as we look at it now, we might not have the old 15-footers uh, cruising around here with us, but uh, we do actually do have uh, the bones that we've dug up. Now, since again, I have gotten to this quite a bit in other episodes, I'm not going to, you know, do all of that here, but I, there's something really interesting she does. Now, what, what she's doing is she's, I mean, you may think this simple series that I'm doing is way too in-depth, right? I know my wife would, but... I am touching probably 20% of Laura's book. She goes deeply. She goes, again, she goes hard into the family lines, bloodlines throughout history of the Edomites, and she traces them. Now, we won't get into this in this episode, but, you know, the 12 tribes is always something, and I've alluded to this, the 12 tribes is something that um, they are not back together in a sense uh, these days. Nobody knows who they are, right? Most of the Jews that were scattered in the diaspora and thousands of years that came back in 1948 and, and are in, in, in between anywhere in the world right now. London has a ton. New York City has a ton. Obviously, Jerusalem has some. But, you know, so nobody really knows what tribe they're from. Well, they're starting to get better at that stuff. But the point is, is it's really hard to trace them throughout history. And there's a lot of really different sects. And that is S-E-C-T-S, all right? Uh, there's a lot of different sects out there that uh, you have to you have to really weave into how they work into um, different countries' ancestry. So it's very, boy, it's, it's just way more tedious than I'd ever want to do. But she leans on some great um, historians that have done so, and she does that as well. And again, it doesn't make for the best podcasting, but it does make for really good reading. So... I'm not going to dive into that uh, a whole lot, but just 
understand that she is really starting to trace the um, the role of the Edomites. So if we're gonna if we're gonna say there's this Israel side and then there's this antagonistic side, it's almost that Cain and Abel. You know, you just see it. It's always a motif throughout the Bible with two different. You know, one. We, you know, Ishmael, right? Like, so we, we always have, uh, out of the womb sometimes Isaac and Ishmael, you know, we just have these split things, Jacob and Esau. And this seems to be a really big deal. This seems to be that one where the, um, the anti-Israel goes and battles them until the end of time. And she believes that's where the, you know, that epigenetic stream, the, the Edomite strain is going to lead to the end times. And she does a really good job of this. So she starts tracing the Edomite migration from Rome, uh, you know, because you kind of have to, you kind of have to go back to where Jesus has left, right? The, the New Testament is done. The churches have been started. The, the, um, the the disciples did an incredible job obviously they they advanced it as jesus claimed and prophesied way more than he could have uh, after he left by just multiplication and people came to christ and paul's journeys and all that well really it's still a regional thing until rome gets a hold of it now don't even get me started on roman catholicism okay uh, but especially ancient Roman Catholicism and, and how it really all spread from Rome and uh, and then how you had to start tracing it as it then gets popular within every continent to become the world's leading religion even to this day, still ahead of Muslims. So uh, that is a monumental task, but it's one that's very important. And she does that. She goes all the way back to Rome and the history of uh, some different sects, again, clans of the Judeans and Edomites, even like I mentioned last time, into Herod. So I won't, again, I won't bore you with this stuff, but she's getting research from Johns Hopkins University. She's um, she's citing, which I, you know, I love citing uh, I'm done writing um, real articles and papers for different people. I used to do that quite a bit, but the, the citing part of it is just too too tedious for me. <laughs> I'm not really a details guy. Uh, so anyway, she does a great job of that. And the Khazars and, uh, you know, wh where they come from. She's back to that phallic symbol where they worshipped and they were the seafaring group. She talks about the Phoenicians, and anyway, she's really she. What she's doing is she's tracing this across Europe and saying, hey, "Guys, when the Jews came all back together, when they are coming back together, this is what God was, you know, secretly doing." Kind of like the uh, the episodes I did not too long ago on the Essenes and the Qumran community, right? So you see, I think you see God working. Uh, behind the scenes in in keeping and restoring his lines. You know, it's nothing for him to do that with the Messiah all the way through. <laughs> yeah, so it's nothing for him to continue to do that with, uh, you know, that's how Satan doesn't know what the end times are going to entail. He, he knows more than we do, but he doesn't know the timing, and, and there's a lot of stuff in there that he doesn't even get. So uh, that's kind of all part of it. Now, sorry, I didn't fix the noise gate on this thing yet. My bad. Anyway, 
so she's going back in and she's looking at how Jacob and Esau deceived, right? And she's looking into this word deceive. The Hebrew word for this deceive is nasha. And we covered that a little bit, I think, in the last one. But it means to lend on interest. And this is really important. So if I were to give you something freely like God does, uh, that just means, look, I'm going to give you this gift of salvation. And if you accept it, there's nothing you have to do. You you don't even have to be a great person. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to show those signs. But, you know, you, God, it's, there are many Christians who are doing horrible things, right? Uh, so basically, this is different. This, when you deceive someone, you are you are lending on interest or usury, or, or basically you become a creditor. She says, Johnson defines usury as the result of a power relation where the superior is able to use that status to extract non-economic rents out of the inferior. This is to say rents that are not based on market, labor, or use values. So, She's really starting to lean into that for the roots of the Federal Reserve. And we all know, like, I'll just tell you, Rachel and I are, we were Dave Ramsey-ish all the years we were having, you know, kids and the kids grew up and it's just sports and, you know, we decided to buy RVs and camp with them with our friends and, and there's just stuff, right? But all along, we were kind of Dave Ramsey, and I don't care if you like Dave Ramsey or not, but we were Dave Ramsey-ish in that we... There, we did acquire some debt along the way just for life, but we it wasn't much. And at the same time, we didn't buy the nicest of things. We were some idiots a few times with a few of the campers. And, uh, you know, Honda Pilot, when it first came out, we had the first one on the road in Toledo, Ohio, back in 2000, whatever that was, four. I don't know. We, we, were, we did some dumb things, but overall, we didn't get into over our heads with any houses. We didn't get over our heads just you know, buying the most ridiculous stuff that's just going to get trashed by kids anyway. My my point is, circling the airport here, to tell you that, you know, these days, after our kids are, two of the three of ours are gone, they don't live here anymore, and, and Alston, AJ, still lives here, but he's never here, and he's in college, and he's always with his girlfriend, and they have a life. Um, and so we've really pounded down on getting rid of the debt and like I told you last episode, we do still rent, but we're looking at buying now that the market's getting more acceptable. And uh, we'll throw that you know, 20, 25% down on whatever house we buy. And then we will get a 15 year and we will hammer that and hopefully pay that off in five or six years. So we were completely debt free, not even, you know, not, not our credit cards or our cars or anything, but also the house that we buy. So that's that's the goal, and the goal is because debt is um, it will truly imprison you and ruin your life. Now, don't be discouraged if you are nowhere near that, but I would just encourage you to maybe even take the first steps with whoever you want to listen to. The Money Guys are great. Um, the Money Guy, that podcast is awesome. You want to start with Dave Ramsey, you want to start anywhere, get out of debt. Get out of debt. Get the snowball going. Take the what? What do you have? This is the most interest that's pounding you every single month, and wail on that, and just make yourself a list and start checking that down. All without stopping your tithing to your church. All right, enough of that. But the point is, what I'm getting into is the Federal Reserve did just that and put us all into slavery. 
and that slavery is, has truly led to the end of our freedom. Now, while I'm not a big financial kick guy on this, you know, on this drilling down, it's, I do a few things in that realm. Uh, there's other people that do a much better job at that. But for me, it's just a thing of, look, debt enslaves you. Who are you enslaved to? And you can go and you look at your physical debt for that too, but I'm in debt to Jesus Christ as well. What do I owe him? I don't owe him anything. I didn't do anything to deserve it. That's the one you get free on. But what I do for him is I give him all the credit and all the glory, and I beg for him every single morning that I'm in my Bible to go before me and, and work through conversations I'm going to have that day, big th- big decisions that need to be made that day. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to get in his word, and I'm going to do my very best to treat Rachel with the, the best love and, and patience and kindness that I can, as he calls to, and my kids, and and help other people see the love of Christ. I mean, you get it. So, So that's what I'm doing in return. But when you don't have that system, and by the way, that's a system he put in place for the Israelites. We covered that, but that's, that's, that's what happened with Moses. That's what was going on in Leviticus. When you get all freaked out about all that stuff, go back, listen to my uh, episodes on Leviticus. They are very important. You go back and you see, oh, the system that God set up. Okay. He did so that, so that we could truly be free. But when they cried out, they want Saul and they want a king, right? They, then everything fell apart after that, and they fell into that slavery to no matter who was their king from then on out. Uh, so she starts getting into this nasha and this usury, right? This whole idea, like I was talking about before I got sidetracked, of to lend something to someone on interest and Nasha is the basis of our monetary system here in the United States. The Federal Reserve is built on usury. And again, my upcoming one with Brad Luring, we'll do a live interview and we'll talk about this. The Federal Reserve is built upon lending with interest. The Federal Reserve's entire product is debt. King Solomon sums it up in Ecclesiastes 1.9 when he says, what has been will be again. What has been will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And it's the same root defilement stemming from the beginning of ages, just repackaged and renamed to perpetuate the deception. But as Laura says, we are waking up from our slumber and a growing number of Americans want to know what or who is behind the curtain. That's why you're here. Just who is the Wizard of Oz controlling our monetary system? As you might have guessed, our investigation will lead us to answer this question and brace yourself. It's not going to be pretty. There is truly nothing that's pretty about our entire governmental system. So she moves into talking about these Khazars and how they were amassing great wealth throughout after the, you know, the old Testament throughout the Roman, the Greeks and Romans reign, especially the Romans. And then through when Europe was starting and they were kind of moving into their position of amassing wealth so that they then could control the money 
because when you control the money, you can enslave the people. So just so you know, there is a spirit, and, and I mean, this is, Satan is really good at this. There are, like she said, there are different parts of the country, different parts of the world where these ley lines intersect that truly have um, an evil spirit about them because there are fallen angels over these geographical properties. And if there aren't many Christians there, there aren't many, there aren't many prayers happening there. You're really not combating that ground. I know this sounds crazy to some of you, but that it's, it can be more given over towards evil. And there's parts of the world where just really bad things continually come from. So she's tracing these things. uh, And she's, you know, basically mentioning that the spirit behind debt, and I think this is a real thing, is slavery. And these are real entities that are attached. When we're in debt, we don't have the freedom to spend our money as we desire. So what most Americans do anyway, if you're listening to this from outside the country, I'll just give you a little hint why we're, we're, we could be stupid sometimes. We're in debt. We don't have the money to buy maybe something to keep up with somebody else or just a nice car to look, to look the part that we need to look at in our minds, in our jobs, or the house to keep up with everyone else or whatever it is. And so we go into more debt. And it could be something as simple as just buying uh, buying a grill that you don't need. You already have a grill, but you want a better grill. And I I get it because I, I do all the cooking at my house and I have for our entire marriage. It's I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. And uh, I get the idea of wanting a new grill, but uh, we get to the point where we just don't save up for that thing. And it doesn't matter if it's a grill or a car or house or whatever. Or travel sport for our kids. We don't save up for that. We just go into more debt after more debt after more debt. And we become more enslaved. And we, in the end, don't have any freedom. And you know what it does? I really believe that it depresses our emotional state. It it makes us burdened to our very souls because we're not designed to have that kind of slavery on us. We're designed to have freedom. Now, I don't want to make this you know, all about getting out of debt, but debt is bondage. And every American is a bond slave because of our national debt. So you have to understand that. And you may not care. You may say, we're just going to print more money. It doesn't work that way. <clears throat> this is an insidious system characterized by a two-headed monster, the IRS and the Fed. And they both rob every American of our freedom. So here's what happens. The Fed spends our future. Perhaps you're not aware that every American is on the line for a portion of the national debt thanks to the IRS. <laughs> Uh, she actually has a number here. She says, as I'm writing this paragraph, each taxpaying citizen owes, uh, what is that number? 
1,083,738,000 to cover the national debt. Every single American, according to usdebtclock.org. And if that ain't slavery, I don't know what is. Right now, just being an American citizen and having the rights to the freedom and the medical care that we have in the public schools, private schools, and the military that's protecting us, all of that, you just for that, you just owe almost $200 million, which obviously you're never going to repay. So that's why you're always a slave. I can't repay that either. Even if I could, I wouldn't want to repay that. Nobody else is. So she starts tracing these Fed. Where, where are we going to go back to? Well, we got to start looking at the czars, right? We got to start looking at a lot of it happens in Russia. Genghis, uh, Genghis Khan, I should say it properly. Genghis Khan. I, I, uh, I always correct people when they say Genghis Khan. So I should probably say it correctly myself. Anyway, um, he comes and he starts laying waste to the 13th century. I won't bore you with all the details, but what happened was by his invasions alone, he like um, he kicked the can down the road. He he spread out the Jewish uh, Khazars into Russia, Ukraine, uh, Lithuania, and Poland for the most part. And this is going through historians of tracing the the Judeans in Eastern Europe, which is fascinating to me because I'm a world history buff. I know not everybody thinks about this stuff all the time, but you you know this is what the heck happened to the Israelites and the twelve tribes never went away. And, and in the end times, this is why it's important because because Yahweh is going to Jesus and Yahweh are going to bring this thing back together and they're going to unite the twelve tribes again. They know who's who. And there are some advancements that Israel is doing in their blood work and DNA and all that stuff where they are starting to assemble that tribe back as they begin to build the third temple. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Come on, guys. Let's just do this right now. Yeah. So uh, she traces a lot of that and says where the Edomites are going throughout this part of history, which I love. Uh, again, doesn't make for great podcasting. She goes back into Ezekiel's quotes, and she's constantly looking at Old Testament prophecy to show what actually happened after the time that the church was started and the Romans and everybody, you know, Europe was happening, and she's constantly reflecting back on the two of those, even the writings of Josephus around this time. She goes into genetic studies um, debating Zionist geneticists and Jewish scholars, which are trying to find who the Jewish people are. Are they residing in Israel? You know, some of them are, obviously some of them are somewhere else. So she does a great job over hundreds of years of getting into that, even into Muslim Palestine. And, uh, she's basically what she's doing is she's again, tracing through the czars, through these kings, through the European Jews, the Caucasus, the uh, Europeans, the Middle Eastern ancestries, who's going to come out in this Esau, red, hairy, Nephilim, triggered, ready to be turned on at any moment, beast? And you could always tell because the people that it's always the people that enslave the uh, the, uh, the Israelites, or the Jews, because Israel wasn't a nation for so long, right? Okay, so <laughs> to not bore everyone, she starts looking at the character of Edom 
and the traits of the Edomites and how we can apply that again to finding who these people were. And we went into a little bit of that on the last time. Um, She talks about the color red. And I think this gets really fascinating here when she starts using this red, uh, which the, the Hebrew word for that is for Edom is Adam which means to be red. Remember, Adam was built out of that red clay and I think definitely had a reddish hue and color to him just as being human. Um, But Esau chose to be red. And this choice had substantial ramifications upon his generational line. He branded himself as red when he willingly traded his birthright for red stew, something much deeper than just as a desire for lentil soup was at work here. Esau seals a transaction, one that would constrict his allegiance to a particular seed. In essence, he aligned himself with red, the seed of Satan, and he rejected the birthright blessings of Abraham and Isaac. He separated himself from Yahweh. From his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, he did this on he does he did this on purpose. So this is this is kind of interesting. I might camp here for a moment. I think I will um, because I thought this was rather this is really good that she does. And I'll kind of quote some here. She says, "What does it mean to be red?" Great album by T. Swifty. She says, first, let's consider the biblical meaning of the color red. Its obvious connection with red is the blood of sacrifice. The blood of Jesus which cleanses us from sin. This is an example of red being linked to the seed of God. But there are numerous connections of red aligning with positions that are antithetical to Yahweh, positions that align with the seed of Satan. So she quotes from Isaiah, where he talks about uh, the red could be the sin of the blood of evil deeds. She quotes Revelation where red is chaos, death, destruction, dragon. Also in Revelation, that dragon, red, is Satan. And there's, I mean, she's right in what she's saying here. There's another part of Revelation where red is equals to the beast or mystery Babylon, martyrdom in general. Uh, Red carries these connotations of intense emotion, passionate love. That's why you see in the movies a lot of time the antagonist woman is in bright red lipstick. I mean, it is a real thing. Eroticism, seduction, danger, power, violence, anger, and rage. That's not just a coincidence. Areas known for prostitution and sexual perversion are called Turn on the red light. Roxanne. Yeah. Uh, Red is also associated with death. It's equated to Satan. It's observable by vast majority. This makes my Leviticus thing even better, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Just artists and renditions of the devil and evil. Occultists use red candle wax in preparation for black magic, and that's magic with a CK. Um, She says, below is an excerpt explaining this. Red incites accidents, fires, and injuries. It is used in spells to invoke power and intensity before workings of black magic. Red is inflammatory and is used in spells for revenge, anger, courage, determination, uh, and dealing with enemies. The color red is firmly rooted in the physical world. The burning of red candles is used to put one in touch with the power of the flesh. Red represents temporal pleasures. 
What strikes me, Laura says, about the above description is that the use of red candles and black magic closely parallels the character traits of the three Edomite men we reviewed, vengeful and angry. It's a good point. She looks at the hunter aspect of Esau. Uh, he's a hunter. He's Yada, which means to be skillful and to be wise. He's Tzayed, which means to be uh, take the prey, P-R-E-Y, take that prey um, viciously in hunting. It comes from that she's looking into the root words here where she's likening it to him being a rugged man, an outdoorsman who's skilled at hunting and probably enjoyed the thrill of the hunt, the stalking of the animal, and then moving in for the kill. This root word talking about this is used figuratively, figuratively, to describe someone who lies in wait to catch a human. In other words, to entrap someone with the intent of exploit a personal gain. The other words, to entrap someone with the intent to exploit personal. The discovery of these character traits helps us develop a character stretch of character sketch of Edom. Edom, interesting, was a rugged, gruff, strong, and burly mountain man, kind of like myself, who was cunning and skilled in hunting down prey. He likely was a man driven by the thrill of the kill. Great album cover. And had very little interest in the tradition of his fathers. Additionally, he was intelligent, he was wise, he was willing to be patient in stalking his prey, but he was quick to pounce when the time was right. So she takes and she blows up the character of Esau. She looks into the book of Jasher, which is, again, kind of like the book of Enoch uh, in Jubilees, where we can gain some good things out of there. She looks at Esau's personality, that he was deceitful. Um, he was vengeful. It's just something different about him. And a lot of these words will cross-reference back to the words used in the Old Testament for Nimrod who was also a mighty hunter and was commingling with the giants. That's one word study that is really important to do, especially in times like this when you go, okay, so let me just, the biblical authors, friends, were, were not stupid. And I know that we, we look at this as, you know, well, God drew everything. No, it wasn't an auto pen. It was, it was literally, literally God just using humans to do this and, Sometimes um, with like Jeremiah and Baruch, you know, like the king would destroy part of the Bible and they'd have to just write it again. So, but anyway, my point is that they are extremely um, good at using certain words only when they really mean it. Such a different, colorful ancient Hebrew languages than what we've got here in English. There are so many words that don't translate back and forth, which is why we have so many translations of the American Bible, because not all scholars can agree on, you know, let's say, I mean, obviously there, there's not a word for cell phone back then, but there's not even a word for, uh, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. I don't have one, but let's just say there's not a word for excitement. And I'm not saying this, but I'm giving you just a stupid example. We say, Ooh, we're excited. Well, they would have like 10 different words and they all really meant a different thing. And you'd have to actually go back and see how those were written and then where they were written the same in other places. So that's how we find these comparison for 
Nimrod and what he was doing and Esau, what he's doing, and it's the biblical author's point of view. And again, Dr. Michael Heiser is so instrumental in all this being that he is a scholar of ancient Hebrew and can take those things and parse them properly and, and show us the different areas of English that we should probably use more than the other one. And uh, so it's really important. Uh, the story, it's just with Nimrod and, and Esau, it's just incredible because there's so many there's so many things about Esau's character that she breaks apart. Maybe I'll do in a separate, you know, through the Bible at some point. Did I? Actually, I'm way through that. I'm going to get that one back up and going, but I'm actually through that. Um, she says, the story of Esau is incredible. That it contains valuable details about his life. It brings to life the convincing, conniving, designing, deceitful, murderous aspect of his personality. Esau must have been very confident in his hunting skills that he, she would, so she, what she does is she takes an excerpt, I guess I'll read from the book of Jasher again. This is not canon, but this is, uh, this is really interesting stuff here. Uh, listen to this, Jasher 27, 1, 5, and 7. Uh, and Esau at that time, see, from these books like Josephus, what we get is uh, Jubilees, Jasher, stuff like this. We can, the Maccabees even, with, with going into the um, into that side of things, you can get some historical stuff that you go, whoa, somebody wrote this, somebody chronicled this, and while it's not supposed to be in the Bible, we should probably at least take a look at it. Here we go. From Jasher 27, 1, 5 through 7. And Esau at that time, after the death of Abraham, frequently went out into the field to hunt. And Nimrod, king of Babel, the same was Amraphel, also frequently went with his mighty men to hunt in the field and to walk about with his men in the cool of the day. Interesting, that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I won't, I won't rabbit trail there. It goes on, and Nimrod was observing Esau all the days, for a jealousy was formed in the heart of Nimrod against Esau all the days. And on a certain day, Esau went in the field to hunt, and he found Nimrod walking in the wilderness with his two men. And all his mighty men and his people were with him in the wilderness, but they removed at a distance from him. And they went from him in different directions to hunt. And Esau concealed himself from Nimrod, and he lurked for him in the wilderness. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were. When Esau started suddenly from his lurking place, he drew his sword and hastened and ran to Nimrod and he cut off his head. That was a really bad use of that. Uh, what? Oh, what? Now, I, I can't get in right now. Maybe I'll do it a little bit later, but why Nimrod and Esau would not like each other, why Nimrod would be incredibly jealous of Esau, but uh, what? The crap. The story is incredible. 
it shows who Esau was, if it is in fact true. And it shows why he would, in maybe that instance, come back from the field and be weary and famished as he exerted such a tremendous amount of energy, killing Nimrod and two of his guards. He was on the run from the rest of Nimrod's men. Remember Esau, even though he was a jack wagon, uh, he still was Isaac's son. He was way more powerful spiritually, physically, in a supernatural way than Nimrod ever could be. He just made stupid choices. Interesting. He's on the run from the rest of Nimrod's men, according to the book of Jasher, who were intent on avenging the death of Nimrod. And in this state, Esau finds Jacob in the tent making lentil stew. I love this. Kimberly Rogers in The Esau Effect explains the significance of this exchange. She says, I quote, Jacob was at home performing the rituals that he was the responsibility of the firstborn son, Esau. Uh, What ritual was that? It was the traditional meal of comfort that the eldest son made to his father when the grandfather died. Red lentil stew was the traditional Middle Eastern meal of comfort that Isaac deserved to have cooked for him by the firstborn son. But Esau was so self-concerned that his only thought upon the death of his grandfather, Abraham, upon whose knees he sat, was to go kill things. His thoughts were not toward the grieving Isaac and caring for him. This is the backdrop of the transformation of Esau to Edom. Interesting. Esau chose to be red by covering his hands with murderous blood instead of fulfilling his role as a loving firstborn son caring for his grieving father. Unbelievable. Now we understand why God says, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate. She goes on, but in this just short paragraph here. Is this enough to determine that there's a strong link between the Edomites and the Khazars, which she has been tracing through the out time for the, the last thousand years? She says, I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied yet. Let's dig further. She, this is what I great. That's what I love about her. I'm, that's why I'm telling you this moment. So she says, in case you're asking yourself at this moment, is it really necessary to dig further? I want to remind you of a caveat I mentioned at the outset. That is that our investigative journey will take twists and turns in unexpected ways. Sometimes those twists and turns will not be as fruitful of others, of others. But if we are to uncover the roots of the Federal Reserve, we must keep digging because the roots, she says, run very deep now. Once again, this is not great for podcasting. Uh, So I won't do that, but I wanted to make that biblical connection there. Uh, She's going to look at the Edomite and the Khazar, uh, the Khazar connection, and she's going to take this throughout time with the Scythians, the Iranians, the Turkish tribes. Uh, She's going back into the Strong's concordance and she's looking at rude, rough, red. Uh, I love the way she's tracing these things. And uh, I'll close out here with, uh, not not with this episode, we're going to keep going, but th- this little section here, she gives a little paragraph and then her key points again. So let me, let me cover that. She says, the first century account of red-haired people of extraordinary height in Asia provides a possible link to the origin of the Khazars. Uh, that's probably anglicized on my uh, part. 
After looking more closely at the trail of the Edomites into the Caucasus region, we can more assuredly surmise that the Khazars and the Edomites were similar in many ways. They were wild, red-haired, rugged, and by the way, this is what Sasquatch are just saying, are, uh, are mostly looked at. Rugged, uh, exploitive, barbarians, murderous, synchronistic, vengeful, and opportunistic. But we must recognize that there was not a singular trail of migration for the Edomites. They spread out into other regions besides the Caucasus. There may be possible connection to Rome. And she's getting ready to head in that direction. <laughs> yeah. So key points, just so we can cover these, uh, John Herricutts, and, and some of these will be new every time I do key points to you guys because I have left a lot of the book out, right? So maybe this will help bring that together each time. Uh, uh, John Herricutts forced the, oh, sorry, I had thought somebody was calling through here, forced the uh, Edomites, the Edomites to convert to Judaism. Uh, admixture, did you guys hear that email come through? Did you guys hear that notification? That's what I was wondering. I wonder if that comes through on air with my new setup. Um, anyway, Edomites migrated into the Caucasus at several points in history after the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar as a result of trade routes of the late centuries BC and the fall of Jerusalem. Khazar kingdom was vast, powerful empire in the Caucasus from first century BC to the 10th century AD. So that's a long time. Uh, the Khazars were a mysterious, mysterious people who originated from Asia. They were a violent, warlike people who engaged in sexual excess, usury, which that word nausea, and slave trading. Ooh, something to look at, and she did. Uh, Khazars had a mass uh, conversion into Judaism in 8th century AD and were taught from the Babylonian Talmud. There were a certain kind of uh, Ashenenses, Zeus, is that how you say that? Jews, I'm sorry. Uh, Ashken, Ashkenazi, <laughs> which she says came from Kazaria. Thank, thank Lord, thank the Lord that I'm not really going through all this with you guys, right? Because you're just lost. Uh, Esau chose to be red by aligning himself with the seed of Satan and rejected his birthright blessing. And lastly, the Khazars and Edomites shared similar characteristics. They were wild, red-haired, rugged, exploitive, barbarians, murderous, synchronistic, um, vengeful, and opportunistic. Okay, so... What she's going to do next, I guess, I, I can't save this for another episode. I've just got to keep going through with this one. We got to get done with this. <laughs> it's just so good. I love it. Maybe I'm the only one. Not actually by the numbers. You're loving it too, so shut up. She goes back to the Roman Empire. I'll leave this for the book. Dang it. And she goes into... Uh, pretty deep starts painting a very vivid picture of what's happening with the Edomites and how their line is starting to form like in Nero and a type of antichrist that is starting to do that epigenetic thing that is opening up generations that I think, I think in the end will also lead to the end time antichrist. A lot of debate out there, whether he is a European or whether he is um, makes himself Pope of the Romans, or whether he is a Jew, or whether he is a Muslim. And there are a bunch of different scholars and uh, great researchers that I listen to, and I read their books, and I've even covered them some on here, but uh, no one can seem to come to a collective... I think everybody makes a pretty good argument. I'm still staying with the European side of things 
personally, but maybe I'll be persuaded one day. Or maybe I'll be deceived. Anyway, she talks about the Romans, and I love what she's doing here in the Jewish Targums, but I'm not going to get into that. Not good. Jewish rabbis. Um, oh, gosh, I wish I could go for this. Mm. Uh, so she's looking at different writers and linking Edom and Rome. So just know that she does a great job with that, and it's very important. Uh, and that she's looking at different scholars' work when it comes to the migration of the Edomites. But I will try to skip some of that and peruse properly so that you guys don't drive off the side of the road in confusion. She's tracing Esau throughout Rome. And she closes out this section. I'll give you a few key points so that we can do the cliff notes here. At this point in our investigation, we are drawing close to being able to connect the dots between the Edomites, the Khazars, the Ashkenazi, the Jews, and the Rome, the Vatican especially, and Zionists. Well, what does this have to do with the Federal Reserve, she says? I know you're thinking, great question. Were there individuals behind the creation of the Federal Reserve that we need to investigate, like the Rothschilds coming into focus? She says, we'll soon discover that all financial roads lead to the house of Rothschild. Now that's getting exciting. Her four key points. Number one, Emperor Constantine may have been an Edomite. She does a great job of, I think, showing a good, strong case for that. Number two, the translation of the Jewish Targum for Lamentations 4.22 states that Rome is Edom. Interesting. Number three, rabbinical tradition records that the Edomites are the founders of Rome. And lastly, similarities between Rome and Edom, haughty, bloodthirsty, cruel, and enraged in genocide. Very cool. So we're going to get into, and I guess I'll do this in this episode, the rise of the Rothschilds. Now, since we did do the, um, oh crap, what do we do? Gosh, I'm losing it. Uh, really, Kyle? Since we not, I am not going to, I got to cut this part out. It's so bad that I am forgetting the family I did the whole series on. You know what? Like sometimes you draw a blank, guys, Rockefellers. I'm going to keep that in there. Just so you know that I'm an idiot. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Whatever. So, what do I want to do with this? Cheapers, creepers, son of a mother. All right, here we go. I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. The tentacles of the House of Rothschild reach into the monetary... uh, policy of 85% of the countries worldwide. So and that was of a 16, a 2016 report, 164 central banks owned and controlled by the Rothschilds. You won't ever see them. You don't know them. We see the likes of whoever the new guy is, that's richest in the world. And Elon Musk is right after that. And then whoever's after that. And then Gates is after that. And then probably Bezos is after that. And after that, it's probably Buffett and whatever. 
we see those things, some chic somewhere or whatever. They are not even, I mean, they, they are not in the same universe as the family of the Rothschilds who don't ever poke their head out of the sand. Multi-hundred trillionaires of net worth. But they didn't use that power for social media. They don't use that power for politics. They use that power to run countries. He who has the money runs the country. So she starts going and looking into the Rothschilds and their modus operandi. Uh, she goes into where how they started. I won't get into that because I did a lot of that, again, the Rockefeller side of things. So uh, she does a deep dive, and I love it, but it'll probably come out in our key points, which are like, thank you. But she does, I think she does a great job. And again, if you want to look up the crest, family crest of the, the coat of arms of the Rothschild family, there is a lot going on there. Um, she does a great job of, you know, kind of zooming in on that and going, Hey guys, check out all this absolute satanic effery. You know what I'm saying? Which is really cool. Uh, she also points out the, um, the red shield is used there, which should be interesting to you by this point. Um, the Rothschild family invested in, you know, they, they made wars that's what they did. They set up countries to rise and fall in wars to happen and not happen, even, even to modern day. Uh, she gives part of their, the Roman god of war uh, is part of their coat of arms, who is the heavenly manifestation of that god of war, whose name is Mars, is called the Red Planet. Uh, you know, all roads lead to Rome and all financial roads lead to the house of Rothschild. She says, we see unfolding before the layers of a cult, meaning the chosen name Rothschild. The Rothschilds are Ashtag Nancy Jews, Jews, uh, which form our discovery. And back in chapter 16, she says, means that they are descendants of the Kazarians. This yields an increase, increasing probability that the Rothschilds are Edomites, from the connection to Rome. After all, red is the calling card of the Edomites. So she goes in to link them with the, the Edomites. This is what she's doing with the Rothschilds. Just fascinating. She starts naming the Rothschilds and going in hoots, which are most, um, most of them you would, you would recognize by name, at least from their last name, because they're, they're names of, Real big companies these days. Uh, and who actually ran those things, each of the guys, and what they had to do with the Federal Reserve. Um, and so what she does really cool, I think, is she keeps that Federal Reserve question at the forefront of everything. So when she links somebody like Jacob Schiff or who or Paul Warburg or whoever, you know, she's going into and linking, she is constantly showing where they set up, how they set up, and how really Satan was using them, how they were wanting to be used by him to in the end set up this entire department of slavery. Then she starts rolling into that all created the tentacles. And the, it, it allowed the Rothschilds to infiltrate the American banking system. Thank God, Kyle, we're almost there. We are. And uh, 
she so she goes into central banks and how all the tentacles go back into the Rothschilds, which I'll leave that for the book. But she starts with the Bank of North America, how that formed. I think Brad Learning and I did on our last one. We talked a little bit about that. Brad talked about greenbacks and and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and how you know how we had to have a fiat system at some point, but then how we've been enslaved to it. So she she goes in Alexander Hamilton and talks about the uh, the first bank of the United States, which is really cool. How that formed with the European banks and basically how the tentacles were being built. I won't bore you with that, but she has a little excerpt here that says: Over the next several years, the government was forced to sell all its shares, liquidating twenty percent ownership and effectively shifting the bus to a one hundred percent privately owned central bank. Rothschild was the primary shareholder. shareholder and conducted the ebb and flow of monetary policy in the United States. In 1811, the charter was set to expire, and Jefferson vehemently opposed its renewal. Stephen Mitford Gotson, in The History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind, describes this practice of the bus and the vote that denied... Okay, so what she's talking... I'm sorry for kind of getting on and off here, but what she's talking about is she's basically saying... Hey, some of our smarter uh, founders said, hey, we, this is stupid. There's no way we should get involved with a national bank. We're going to be enslaved and they're going to have all the control. We've seen it before all over Europe. That's why we came to the United States. That's why we started the United States so that we could have freedom from that. And so they fought that for a while. And she so she shows them fighting that. She's in the 1800s hanging out and looking at the Rothschilds and what they started to purchase at rock bottom prices again, just like we saw in the Rockefeller thing, right? Like the rich are able to gobble things up, just like we saw through to, uh, 2009 after that collapse. And then again, through COVID, when everyone was hurting and dying, the rich were just getting richer. And it, that's just the way it works, friends. So she draws another one of those super cool maps and got the Nephilim on top and then the Raphaim under them. And then remember those biblical, all those tribes that we went through. And then she's got under those tribes, the Edomites, they all come, they all focus down at the Edomites as, as the, uh, the different cultures are being sent throughout the world. It's very cool. Uh, and then from the Edomites one, like if you, if you picture a family tree, right, you have the Edomites and then you have two branches coming off of them to the right is Rome and to the left is the Kazarians. And if I'd ever finished my website, I could just, you know, screenshot this thing and put it up there. <laughs> By the way, if somebody's versed in uh, Squarespace, get me going here. Uh, Rome is to the right, Kazarian's to the left. So let's follow the Rome to the right. We come down to the Vatican and the Black Pope, which we've talked about the Black Pope before. That's not a black. That's not a black guy, by the way. Uh, and then under that, the guardians of the Vatican treasury. If you look at the Edomites and go to the Kazarians, under those are the Ashkenazi Zeus. Why am I? Can I not speak? Ashkenazi Jews, the Rothschilds are under them. Then you have Jacob Schiff and Paul Warburg, and under that is the Federal Reserve. If you followed any of that at all, she did a great job. So here's the key points on this one, and we will close it out with this, and then we're going to get into, um, on the next episode, we're going to get into Zionism, and we're we are probably going to close it out on the last one. I know, guys. I, I hope. I'll try, to, I'll try to get it to where we close it out on the last one, because... 
I don't know. We'll find out. Key points. Rothschilds are, there's like eight of them. Rothschilds are a powerful banking dynasty who dominate economic policies in 85% of the countries of the world and worldwide through their central banking system. Rothschild means red shield in German. A red hexagram marked the Rothschild home in Frankfurt, Germany. Yaga. Red is a calling card for the Edomites and possibly Nephilim hosts. Rothschilds are Ashkenazi Jews and most likely descendants of the Khazars. Rothschilds are the guardians of the Vatican treasury. That was a great little segment I skipped over. Rothschilds are globalists who fund both sides of war to enslave citizens in debt. Mayor Rothschild orchestrated the creation of a secret society called the Illuminati. Skip that part too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Modus operandi of Rothschilds one. Use unscrupulous tactics to usurp the authority of the heads of state to gain control of the country's money supply and gain control of the country. Okay. Number three, conceal profits. <laughs> exactly. What's everybody what's every doing? Remember just uh, the day before 9-11, uh, we revealed that we lost trillions of dollars and everyone, you know, just when everybody was going up in arms, 9-11 happened. <laughs> Uh, number four, use uh, use of clandestine uh, transactions. Number five, exact revenge upon national leaders who reject their control. Yikes. Number six, former world government to subjugate the citizens of the world to the Rothschilds' dominance. Next, Rothschilds have infiltrated the U.S. monetary system through central banking. And lastly, Jacob Schiff and Paul Warburg were the, fir- the most influential Rothschild agents in American banking. So, guys, <laughs> here we are. We're looking at it and we're saying to ourselves, what the crap? Debt is enslavement. You get free of it in your life. Monetarily, you owe no one anything. Except to live in this country, you still owe that. You get rid of your debt that you owe from Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection three days later by saying you believe in him as the son of God. Ask him into your life. He's your Lord and Savior. He pays your debt. But what happens when we live in a country that we really have no control over that debt? Do we fall along those ley lines? Do we fall within that spirit of the Nephilim that is just soaked into our ground so far that it's penetrated our oil? that we harvest up, to put into our vehicles, that we fight wars over? Is that spirit laid so heavily on our ground of America that we no longer have a chance? Guys, I think that's the truth. And as we get into the next episode, we're gonna start talking about where all these things come together and what all this hatred for the Jews is these days. And why prominent countries across the world are actually canceling anyone that says anything against Israel. Isn't that crazy? Where's all this coming to? Well, we're going to talk about that in our upcoming episode. I want to say thank you guys so much for being here and for listening to Drilling Down. I'll see you next time.